Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading In the Arena by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF International. And we are on Chapter 5, Part 2 of The Frustrations. In December of 1934, we were at last ready and allowed to move into Lusulan, taking over the district of Oak Flat. My pen is tempted to dwell on those happy days, but this is a story of frustrations, and I must pursue that theme. Every summer in Lesuland comes the rainy season. It's been necessary for us to leave the comfortable Pine Mountain Village and rebuild the shanty in the Oak Flat Village. Our house site was beautiful, at the edge of a precipitous drop, where no other shanties could be built, giving us a bit of privacy. But the garden space had been a landslide and was simply gravel. We were not good gardeners like Alan Cook, and added to that, the soil was rocky, so our vegetable garden was a failure. Layla Cook had joined her husband in the Luda Church six days' journey away, so we had no senior workers to advise us or counsel us. We saw the need of visiting in the villages and staying a week in a place and teaching the Christians. We had to speak in Chinese at first, Lesu Evangelist John, or job interpreting for us, while at the same time we tried to learn their language. Traveling in the rainy season and living in a leaky Lesu huts are dangerous to the health, and we never tried that again. But that first summer... In our ignorance, we did. When little Catherine took ill with a very high, strange fever, I wrote Dr. Haverson, our nearest medical help, for advice, but it was two months before his prompt answer arrived. The Burma Road had not been built yet in those days. In August, John decided to make a trip to Burma to visit the beloved Gumu group of Christians, whom no white missionary had ever met. That meant he would be gone about a month, a seven days journey each way. While Catherine and I stayed at Oak Flat, John took Teacher John and left Teacher Job with me so that each of us had a Lesu who could speak Chinese and act as our interpreter. And so we parted. Unknown to us, I had picked up erysipelas, a severe infection affecting the whole system, on our last trip among the Lesu, and John was no sooner out of reach in communication than I became ill with strange symptoms. I had never even seen, almost never heard of erysipelas. I just knew I was ill and running a fever. I could not get up. And dear Homely took care of little Catherine, who preferred Lisu food to our American food, so she was not a worry. But I could not eat. Rice, corn, pumpkin, beans, they did not appeal. Homely kept apologizing and said it was famine year and she could not get meat or even eggs. Powdered milk we had and some tinned meat. But I was soon too ill to know what I should have had. Never can I forget the tender concern of the Lesu, dear Lesu. Job came many times a day and offered to go for help at Paoshan, where the Chinese Inland Mission had stationed a young nurse, Catherine Davies, with Winifrey Embrya. But I said, no, no, Job must not disturb them. It was a rough six days to go get them, and it would take several days to purchase supplies and hire carriers and pack to come. Two weeks. I would be better then. No, I said to him, just wait and pray. Dear Job got more anxious as I grew weaker. One morning he appeared with some oil. He anointed me according to James 5.15 and prayed over me and then sang, The Great Physician Now is Near. I was deeply touched by his love, but singing was not Job's strong point, and I'm afraid I chuckled after he left over the memory of that croaking effort. Still, I did not get better. Then one morning Homa walked in and announced, Teacher Job is gone, Mama. He got up at four o'clock this morning and has gone to Payashan to bring medical help for you. Oh dear, I thought dismayly. Now Mr. Fraser will say I told you so. 
Isabel and Lesulin, only eight months in medical help has to be called for. Oh, dear. But I was getting too weak to care. My worst discomfort was my unwashed condition. The fever made me perspire, and I'd been too weak to wash myself for days. I called Ilhame and tried to explain to her what a bed bath was. She listened incredulously and dubiously, but did her best. Soon she was back with a basin of hot water. She set it down beside the bed, dipped her plump brown hands in it, and proceeded to stroke me. That was the most she had comprehended. She knew she was not being successful and looked so grieved and anxious that I had to pretend to be satisfied in order to comfort her. I do not remember much of what happened after that. I was told later that Job ran his feet into blisters and did the six-day journey in four. But with all that painful effort, it was more than two weeks before he was able to bring the girls into our village. They could not walk in those mountains, so the mountain chair coolies had to be found, and not everyone wanted to carry on those Sawin heights. The girls guessed, and rightly, that I was sleeping on boards, so they decided to bring a folding camp bed. This was the other comforts that had to be carried, and carriers had to be found. Job chafed at the delay of these preparations took, and at last the party climbed the last mountain and reached Oak Flat Village. It was a wonderful moment for me when my bones felt the softness of that camp bed. But I was so weak that I collapsed when Nurse, Nurse Kathleen tried to give me a bed bath. This is not from erysipelas, she said, puzzled. This is semi-starvation. Home, bring me some eggs. Sorry, answered the dear girl anxiously. There aren't any. Well, kill a chicken and we'll make some broth. Again, Homely's face fell. There aren't any chickens. This is a famine season and no one has come to sell anything. There followed hard days for the dear nurse, frustration. In Les Soulin, eggs usually were abounded and chickens were the easiest meat to get. But two months in the year, these two articles are scarce, August and September, and those in the months in which I took sick. To shorten the story, I lived, but with nourishing food so scarce, it was decided to carry me out to Pashan. So, right in line with Mr. Fraser's prophecy that I would not be able to stand mountain rigors ten months after arrival, I was carried out again. Several months of rest and good food restored me, and Mr. Fraser gave permission for me to return to Oak Flat for Christmas. Orders that were a better and healthier house should be built, and then we were to go on furlough. That gave us three more happy months at Oak Flat among the dear Lisu and with Job. I always felt I owed my life to Job as well as to Nurse Kathleen. But why was this frustration of sickness allowed? One cannot always discern the reason for these things. But two are plain to us. One, we learned that when one member of the party was threshing out into Satan's territory, it was also necessary to put a prayer guard on over those who stayed at home. We were all praying for John and his party as they pressed into the demon-plagued territory of Gumu. Those prayers cleared the party's way, and they were very much blessed there. So Satan, in his furious spite, struck at the unprotected home base. Both those who go down to battle and those who stay by the stuff need prayer coverage. We have never forgotten this lesson. 2. We learn that the spirit and the body cannot be divided. It is essential that one keep clean and yielded in the spirit, but the body's needs also must be cared for. That means bother. It means time spent on a garden, fruit trees, and perhaps a hen coop. We ought not to have been so totally unprepared for a hunger season. If the cooks, our seniors, had been able to live with us and coach us, it would not have happened. But workers were at a premium, as I have shown, so we had blindly to pioneer our way. We left for furlough in March of 1936. 
This book with a subject matter, platform, struggles of the soul, must necessarily pass over whole stretches of sunny, happy experiences. On this furlough, we enjoyed comradeship in the things of the kingdom so full of joy, laughter, and fellowship with himself that we turn them over and over again in our memories with never-ceasing delight. This furlough also introduced us to the inheritance of the saints with each had gained in marrying the other. Our Christian friends were on the West Coast and John's were in Pennsylvania. Neither of us knew much about the other's friends, and on this furlough we met for the first time. Of my parents, only my father was alive. We went to see him before traveling to Pennsylvania and again at the end of the furlough. Our ticket to China was purchased and we were packed, ready to go back on a Chinese boat sailing on Saturday at noon. Our farewell service was held in the China Inland Mission home in Vancouver. We said goodbye to our friends and returned to Father's house for our last night's sleep in the homeland. Almost as soon as we entered the door, the telephone rang. It was Mr. Wilcox, our CIM secretary, who had just farewelled us. There has come a telegram, he said, from Dr. Glover, our home director. He says that since war has broken out between Japan and China, all selling must be delayed. Then we do not go tomorrow, said John. Looks like it, said the sad answer. Miss is already on the boat. She got on in Seattle. I guess I'll have to ask her to get off when it stops here tomorrow. Too bad. Well, thank you, Mr. Wilcox, said John. He put the phone down and came in to face our amazed, incredulous group. Friends were with us at that moment. Well, we do not go, Belle, dear, said John quietly. Why not? I was not in the mood to accept another frustration. War has broken out between Japan and China. The mission is canceling all passages until the situation can be newly assessed. But the fighting is in the north of Manchuria, and we're going to the far south of Yunnan. There's no need to hold up either the Jack Graham family or us, I argued. Now, Bill, don't try to run the mission. We must just submit and do it happily, said John, who did not like it when his wife produced a disconcerting independence or when he thought she was trying to take the lead. But here is where my experience of obstacles on the path of God's will stood me in good stead. John had encountered no obstacles in going to China. His path had been wonderfully clear. All obstacles are not from the Lord, I argued in an alarm at his seemingly passivity. Dr. Glover gave a blanket order, which is good for most of the cases. He's forgotten, perhaps, that two of the several families due to sail would be going south where there is not in the least bit of danger and won't be for a long time. Moreover, he probably does not know that there's a small intermission school for missionary kids about to open in Kuming. He's thinking we need to take Catherine to Chifu, which is in the danger zone. If he knew there was a possibility of putting our children in school in the south, it would change the whole picture. By this time, our friends were taking their leave. They had promised to drive us to the dock the next morning and said that the promise would still hold good if we needed them. We said goodbye and then returned to talk it out alone. Phone Mr. Wilcock and ask him. If you're in doubt, I suggested anxiously. Well, we'll ask the Lord first, said my husband, firmly retaining his office as head of the house. We have not had our evening devotions yet, and he reached for the Bible. We were following a certain course of reading, so he opened where the bookmark lay, and then he looked up to me, his eyes twinkling. Guess you win, Belle. Do you remember where reading for last night comes? No. Psalm 91. We both exclaimed, Wonderful. Praise his name. Then John read all the words of promises for the times of danger, beginning, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty, and ending, And show him my salvation. 
When we had prayed, John got up and went to the telephone and called Mr. Wilcox. After explaining our thoughts, he was overjoyed when Mr. Wilcox answered, I've been thinking the very same thing. I was just about to call you. I'll wire Dr. Grover immediately. It was then midnight, so we all went to bed. But you can imagine we were up early, ears strained for the telephone. We were living at North Vancouver, and it would take a good hour to motor around by the bridge to the ocean liner's dock. But it was nine o'clock before the answer came. I approve, Grover. Oh, what jubilation. Everything was packed and ready to go. So into Betty and George's car, we piled and off we sped. Frustrations. Those that are from the devil we must refuse in Christ's name. Mr. Fraser taught us to pray. If this obstacle is from you, Lord, I accept it. If it is from the devil, I refuse it and all his works in Christ's name. My diary tells me we sailed on August the 31st, 1937 with Jack and Ella Graham and their two children on the Hakawa Maru. This ship could go no further than Japan, but we were sure that it would be possible to transship there for Hong Kong. We had some adventures in Japan, but my next platform occurred in September the 19th when our boat pulled into Hong Kong. I was thrilled and happy of the prospect of having our little daughter in school at Kuming. John's sister, Catherine Kuhn Harrison, and her husband were missionary work in that big city. So our girl could stay with her uncle and aunt, so I told myself. Imagine the shock, then, to find a telegram awaiting us at Hong Kong. Send Catherine to Shefu with Grace Liddell. It appears that Miss Liddell, one of our Yunnan workers, was going to Shefu to help on the teaching staff. A safe boat had been procured, and mission headquarters thought it would be a golden opportunity to get Catherine into the China Inland Mission School. It was, of course, much better equipped and staffed in every way than the little Kuming School, but I was so totally unprepared to give up my child so soon. I knew that in one sense it was giving her up for life. Although our mission planned that the children join their parents when possible for holiday times, one never again could watch them grow from day to day. The parting was excruciating for me, and for hours afterwards I could not sit, lie down, or do anything but grieve. I poured over all that I would miss in putting her to bed at night, her sweet childish ways, the likelihood she would forget me to some extent. None of the potent details did I miss. The consequence was that I was fearfully broken up. My dear patient husband walked the streets with me at night until I was so physically exhausted that I could lie down and fall into oblivion. Our boat out of Hong Kong to Haiphong was delayed, and so there was time to spare. I remember going to the Bible class when the subject was praise. The teacher stood at the doorway, shaking hands with us at the close. She took my hand and looked at me very significantly and said, The sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13:15. My inward reaction was, But you have no children. It was true she and her husband were childless. Nevertheless, she had planted a truth from the word in my heart, which I will never forget. There are times when it is a sacrifice to praise him in human sense. In the light of Calvary, nothing we can offer should be called sacrifice. But since there are so few things we can offer him, this should be considered a privilege. We took a boat to Haiphong and then through French Indochina by train into Yunnan. It was during the long hours of sitting on the train that the Lord spoke to me. He said something like this, Well, dear, you have indulged your grief. You have gone over your loss minutely and very by detail. And the last time you'll give her a bath, the last night to tuck her into bed, the last energetic bear hug from the impetus little arms, and the last sight of a lovely childhood sprawled grace, gracefully in sleep, and so on. 
and now I want, I would counsel you. What good did it do you? Emotionally, you are as worn and limp as a rag. It did not profit you physically. It did not help little Catherine at all. It was a drag on your poor husband. Of what use was it to indulge in your grief? Next time, for this is only the first parting of many times to come, let me counsel you to gird up your loins and to try to be a soldier. There are many small helps you can use, especially in the area of the mind. Refuse to let your mind dwell on your loss. It will not make you love her less. Deliberately think of something more helpful or anything rather than your loss. I have given you a thing called common sense. Summon that to your aid. Common sense will tell you to avoid all scenes which harrow the feelings. Singing or music, for instance. Deliberately plan your goodbye so that emotion will be strained as little as possible. When you return home after the loved one has left, change the furniture around so that it does not stir up memories which cause useless grief, and so on. But I argued, wouldn't that make me hard? I do not want to lose the ability to feel. You will not, he promised. In fact, it will go all the deeper when it is allowed to evaporate in burst of emotion. Supplement your feelings. Rechannel your attention towards helping someone else. Amy Carmichael says, help lame dogs over styles. There are lots of lame dogs who have styles to face, styles harder than yours. And so he taught me. Never again did I allow myself to be so broken up over grief, and I found that common sense was a good aid. Also, my love and my concern for my children certainly have never become less. That train trip is wonderfully scenic as it climbs the heights towards Kuming, which is 6,000 feet above sea level, and the beauty of my dear Lord's handiwork coupled with his direct dealing with me in my heart was healing and quietening to me. I needed it, because at Kuming, another blow awaited me, another frustration. It had never entered my head that perhaps the mission would not reassign us to Lee Su work. The reader would have foreseen this long ago, but I certainly did not. Mr. Fraser had prophesied that I could not stand the rough mountain life physically, and after only ten months of it, I had to be carried out sick. Moreover, it was had taken nearly two months' time for two other workers, Nurse Davies and Miss Emmert, who had to go in and help me. It was a perfectly natural that the mission should decide against our return to Lisu, but it had never entered my wildest imagination, and our relatives Catherine and Dave Harrison, seeing that, pitied me. Whatever will Isabel do when she hears that she's not to return to Lisu, they whispered to one another. On September the 27th, my diary tells me, we were called in for an interview with Mr. Fraser. He told me gently that we'd be temporarily stationed at Paishan, with freedom to go to Lesulin on our trips. My diary also records that on that occasion, he frankly stated that he wanted John as his assistant superintendent for the West Yunnan. This was not disagreeable to John. He still enjoyed Chinese work as he did in Lisu, so it was quite a happy designation for him. Not so for me. I had always felt like a square peg in a round hole in Chinese work, partly no doubt because I had had to be a pioneer evangelist, which was never my forte. Bible teaching was where I felt at home and mothering. Miss Frances Brooke, author of My Goal is God Himself and one of my spiritual counselors for years, used to say that she considered my chief gift was that of mothering the Lee Sioux Church. I believe she was right. But there had to be converts already born again, our little church already formed, before one could mother the people or break the word into its deeper meanings to them. I had both in Lee Sioux Lynn, converts and churches. In Passan, 
The church numbered but a mere handful, and Miss Winfrey and Bree was mothering them very capably. At the same time, a situation was arising in Lee Sioux Church in Oak Flat, which gave me much anxiety. My mother's wings were fluttering in alarm over the young. Over the 1st of October, I decided to have a special time of prayer for Oak Flat and also lay before the Lord the soreness of my heart at being shut out of Lesulin. I did not want to stand in the way of my husband's promotion, but my heart seemed tied to the Lesulin Christians. I must get the victory over it. For some years, it has been my habit to fast and pray one morning a month for my own spiritual needs, the church's needs, and the world revival. Miss Ruth Paxson had started me on this habit. My diary records that while I was waiting before the Lord on this occasion, some verses in Zephaniah 3 were given to me. On that day you will not be put to shame, because I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. But I will leave within you the meek and humble, who trust in the name of the Lord. Seeing, O daughter of Zion, the Lord has taken away your punishment. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save, and I will rescue the lame. At that time I will gather you. At that time I will bring you home. When I restore your fortunes before your very eyes. The first part of what I quoted applied exactly to the Oak Flat situation, and the latter part I felt was God's promise to take me back into Lisu work. I cannot tell you the joy and the victory that flooded me. There had been times when the word on which I was caused to hope was not clearly from him. It might have been the product of wishful thinking. Lord, keep your servant from presumptuous sins. On such occasions I would say, I think the Lord wants me to do thus and so. But this promise was clear. There is a difference. He had promised that his sheep shall know his voice, and they do. I knew that morning that God had promised to clear up the situation at Oak Flat and to take us back into the Lisu work. I knew and never doubted. So the garment of praise and singing was mine, although I told no one, not even my husband. The Lord expects us to keep his secrets until his time comes to reveal them. Friends marveled at my happiness as we packed to go to Pashan. They did not know the secret consultations of God. This, too, is a part of the platform of frustrations, the end that we may know him and the power of his resurrection. There was no Burma road in those days. One traveled overland stage by stage. So it was October the 27th when we arrived in Pashan. The diary reads, Our two readers' escorts accept Christ. Miss Emery and the Chinese church leaders came out to greet us and gave us a wonderful reception. We were just there a little more than a month when a letter came from Mr. Fraser saying he must ask us to make a trip to Oak Flat. The situation had become acute, and if the church was to be saved from a split, some missionaries able to speak the language must go in immediately. He would love to have gone himself, but he was too far away and tied up with other duties. We were also to act as an escort to the new Lee Sioux missionary, Victor Christensen, who was to stay at Oak Flat and learn the language. Mr. Fraser hastened to add, Remember, this is not a permanent designation. You do not need to move all your things in, but you will need to bring enough to set up housekeeping for a few months. It would be good for Victor to have the comfort of experienced seniors for a little while. When I heard that, I slipped away to our bedroom and carefully closed the door. I did not want to shock my dear husband by my unseemly levity. But when privacy was well secured, I danced with joy. Temporary destination, I I gloated gaily. So says you, my dear beloved super, so says you. 
He was indeed dearly beloved. He lived on the same high plane as Amy Carmichael, and his godly life, coupled with her brainy leadership, never ceased to inspire us. But he did not know that the Lord's promise to me to send me back to Lisu. So says you, I continued, but not so says the Lord. Then remembering what I owe to that dear master, I dropped on my knees to worship. Really, deep worship is wordless. Words are too shallow to carry the weight of the heart's adoration. How wondrously he had wrought. He had promised to take me back to Lesulin, and here, less than two months after arrival in Pashan, we were on our way to Lesulin. December 13th, we climbed the hill to the west of the city and set our faces towards Salwan. Officially, it was a temporary designation. We found the church much confused over the doctrine of law and grace, and we felt that a long period of Bible study with church leaders was needed. We suggested that the three months of the rainy season should be given to teaching. Mr. Fraser was very enthusiastic about the idea, and so began our first rainy season Bible school, RSBC for short. It was a most blessed time, thrilling proof that this was what the Lee Sioux Church needed. Then on September the 30th, 1938, as we were all packed to take a long trip into Burma to the famous Gumu Church, runners came with the shattering news. Mr. Fraser was dead. He had contracted malignant cerebral malaria and never recovered consciousness. Our superintendent had gone home to God. Personally, I have never ceased to miss him. Nearly 18 years have passed, but at the crisis of decisions, I still often think, what would Mr. Fraser do? With our superintendent gone, all missionaries remained at the station where they were, so the Kuhn family just continued on in Lesulin. Mr. Gladstone Portuous became the superintendent for the Providence, but as Yunnan was such a large field, he never once got west to visit us. At length, in 1940, it was decided to divide the Providence into east and west. This meant he was a supervisor of Chinese as well as tribal work. From time to time, a question arose as to the Kuhn family moving out to Bashan, where John would be near the telegraph office. So the matter of temporary designation hung over our heads for years. After one of these times of acute questions in the matter, I was passing by a group of Lisu church leaders who were talking together. When a remark dropped into my hearing, we would never have had Ma Pa, one deacon was saying earnestly, if Mama had not loved us so dearly. It was a remark of a shrewd understanding, and I wondered, I pondered at it as I walked on, and I think he was correct. And then my mind glanced back many years to that conference in 1924 at the Furs, when Mr. Fraser had poured out his heart about the Lisu tribe, inwardly hoping that one of the two brilliant young men who were present. He got neither, only a girl. Of what use was a girl? In God's unfathomable ways, he was, she was to be the one who brought the needed man into Lisu work. Frustrations had much to do in conforming us into his image. Yes, suffering, but also his sweet, consoling fellowship in that suffering. It reveals to us the power of his resurrection, and when he arranges a release for us that no mortal can manipulate, we come to know him. Rock of my heart and my fortress tower, dear are your thoughts to me, like the unfolding of some fair flower opening silently. On the edge of your ways, standing in awe of heretofore, you do I worship, you do I praise and adore. Amy Carmichael And next time will be Chapter 6, Extinguished Candle Flames. I love you. I'm praying for you. Bye-bye for now.